Let's take our Bibles this morning. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter number 4. As you're turning there, Acts chapter 4 is the first persecution ever recorded of the first century church. And we've learned a number of things here in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to be continuing our study of this chapter. And we're particularly looking at the response or what happened after they were threatened. Remember, that's how we left off. They were threatened not to speak to preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, a man who was lame from birth was raised. Now he is praising, leaping God, praising God, and everybody is glorifying God. And the authorities, the builders of society are disturbed. They don't like it. And they threaten Peter and John not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Now we come to verse number 23, and notice what happens. The Bible says, And being let go, they went to their own company. Now, lest we think that they were nice to let them go, remember verse 21, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they they might punish them because of the people, for all the people glorify God for that which was done. (laughs) They're at an impasse. They're not letting them go because they're nice. They're letting them go because they have no other choice. There's nothing they've done that's wrong, and they know that the people are glorifying God. There's nothing to say. And so, being let go, they went to their own company, that's Peter and John, and reported, and I would say perhaps, because remember the layman was standing with there in their midst, maybe the layman is with them. (laughs) I don't know that, it's just speculation. And reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, that's all the people gathered together in that company, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done, here it is, by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. I would like to bring your attention to verse 29. This is the record of their prayer. The first response we find from the first persecution ever recorded of the church in human history. The church responded, and they responded in prayer. And their petition is found in one of those verses, verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. I would like to preach a message that I've entitled this morning, Facing Threats. Facing 
threats. As we've looked at our passage, if you remember, I'm going to go very quickly, a brief overview. Chapter number one, they were supposed to wait for the coming of the Spirit of God to empower them to do the Great Commission. And then we find that the Holy Spirit comes down and they began to preach and to uh, talk about all the wonderful works of God. A great revival happens and many people who listen to Peter preach on the day of Pentecost were pricked to the heart. They received the word. They were baptized. They were added to the church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and Things are going well in the church, and there's a, if you would, there's a sense of revival with thousands of people coming to know the Lord. And uh, right when that happens, um, now, in as we go to chapter number 3, as uh, Peter and John were going to the temple, they come across this lame man who was begging as he was doing every day, and uh, they were asking alms, he was asking money, he was asking for something that could physically help him, and Peter says, "Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have unto thee, give, uh, such as I have, give I unto thee." Uh, and he uh, basically, uh, in the power of Jesus Christ, by the name of Jesus Christ, the lame man was raised, and he was walking, and he began to go in the temple. He was, the Bible says, leaping. I'm not going to illustrate that for you, but you can visualize what it means to leap. He was praising God, and a crowd has come around, and the people are amazed because everybody knows that this lame man comes. He was sitting at the beautiful gate, asking alms, and that's how he was, and how he is praising God, leaping, rejoicing, and the Bible says he has a hold of Peter and John. The, the uh, crowd gathers and flocks, and uh, what does Peter and John do? Well, there's only one thing to do. Now, notice they didn't go about healing everybody. They were preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. And that is what disturbed the religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, the captain of the guard, uh, the wealthy Jews of the day. They were disturbed that they were preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, finding nothing against them, the only thing that they were left to do is to try to threaten them not to speak nor to teach in the name of Jesus Christ. And we see this first persecution, and we uh, see here, I, I, we call that chapter, and I think appropriately, authentic Christianity. They were ignorant, unlearned men, but yet they, there was something about them that testified of the fact that they had been with Jesus. And that is what was sticking out in their lives. And so these men had to be silenced. They were threatened and they were let go. And what we find in the section from verse 23 through 30 uh, is the response of those believers who have been threatened. And so I want us to come here, and if you would, uh, we want to be New Testament Christians, do we not? It's okay to shake your head. You can do that. Say yes, amen, and all that. That's okay. That doesn't bother me. As a matter of fact, it encourages me. We want to be New Testament Christians. And here we see the first persecution, the first threats for the church, and we see their automatic response as they were facing threats. And I believe we can learn some things and ask ourselves, is this how we would respond? Is this what we would do? Uh, is, does the life of First Aid Baptist Church resemble the life of the first century church? And certainly that is a convicting statement. Before we go into the body of this text, I want us to consider three things by way of introduction. 
Uh, as we look at verse number 23, they were let go, they went to their own company, and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them, and when they heard that, so before they go into a prayer, let's uh, uh, kind of give way to an introduction and to uh, give us a context here before we come to uh, their response. First of all, what we see is they're, right, they're let go, and the first thing we see is we see the emphasis on their company. Now, Peter and John, uh, we, we know, had uh, families, they had friends, and uh, there's no doubt as we think about the life of those disciples, there are many places they could have gone after being under threat. Uh, they went, remember, the last time we saw Peter and John is they were going to the temple, and that's the only thing that perhaps the uh, other disciples, the other believers, and their family members know about Peter and John, is they were, uh, went to the temple and they didn't come back. For some time, and now they come back, uh, but I want you to notice who they come back to. They come back to their own company. What does that mean? They came back to the church. They came back to the place where the believers were gathered together. Perhaps it was in the upper room with the original 120. Uh, obviously, it would not be big enough to house the thousands of people that have believed up to this point, uh, but they went to their own company, and so no doubt, uh, because they didn't have a uh, Church buildings back then that housed thousands of people, so they probably divided people into different houses. And we know that because as we read through the book of Acts, the Bible says, and daily and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And so that's what was going on there. And as we come here, they went back to their own company, so they were divided in perhaps different sections and different groups, and they come back to their own group, their own company that is part of the church. And I believe here there's an emphasis as we think about the first century church as they were facing threats, what did they do? They went back to their own company. That's the first place they went. Uh, they went there automatically. In other words, it tells us that there's something about those New Testament believers uh, that made them extremely connected to the church. You know, I think that today in the 21st century, we have a new form of Christianity that is not connected to the church at all to a local visible body of people that regularly gather together and uh, people like to, uh, they don't want to have some accountability and perhaps when they face threats or trials, they automatically, well, today in the 21st century, go to the social media, go to their friends and go to their family members and, and go on and on about different things happening in their lives. But what these believers did is they went back to their own company and so we see that there's an emphasis on their company. And I believe that if we're going to be a, a, a first century church in the 21st century, we have to have an emphasis on our company. The place where we gather together regularly as believers, and that should be, if you would, an automatic. So we see the emphasis on their company, but secondly, we see the explanation of the consequences. Notice the Bible says when they went back to their own company, verse 23, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. So the Bible says here that they basically say everything that happened. So obviously there was a portion of time when they were not present. There was certainly concerns with the believers. And now they come back and they give, give a full explanation of what's happened here. Uh, I don't know if it was a matter of days here. We don't know the exact timeline. But we know they were absent and they come back and they give a report of everything that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. Now remember, what was it that was said unto them? 
They were threatened, and they were told not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. If you notice with me, in, um, if you go back earlier in the chapter, verse 16, notice the Bible says, saying, what shall we do with these men, to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them, and is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth no, to no man in this name. If you go down to verse number 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go. So uh, uh, these believers here, when they're rehearsing, what are they telling the church? They're telling the church that they've been threatened. In other words, there are consequences to them. And by the way, uh, just as they often uh, attempted to do with Jesus Christ for blasphemy, they would uh, often try to take him and stone people to death. That was the Jewish tradition. And certainly they could have done that. We read later when Paul, as he was traveling on mission journeys, that's exactly what the Jews did. At one occasion, they took Paul out of the city, and they stoned him, and they thought he was dead. And certainly that he could have done the same thing, but because of the people that believed, and the people were glorifying and praising God, they thought to themselves, well, we can't uh, put them to death. That's not going to look good for us. They were politicians. And so uh, they threatened them. They said, don't teach and preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. A threat means that there would be consequences if they did it again. If you preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ you will be harmed. Something is going to happen to you. And so we see the explanation of the consequences, but then thirdly, we see the example of their conduct. And so the Bible says, verse 24, and when they heard. Now, who's the they? That's the church, right? Uh, Peter and John are reporting what's happened. And the Bible says when the believers, their company that was gathered there together, when they heard what Peter and John said, what did they do? The Bible says they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. The first response from the first persecution of the first century church. So there's an emphasis on their company. There's an explanation of the consequences, and there is the example of their conduct. And it was do us well to follow that example and to see what is it that the first century church did under threat while they were facing threats. Now, I do not believe that right now we are facing the threats that they faced back then. But there's no doubt there is opposition. So how do we respond to that? I believe we have to go no further than the Bible. We have to read a book from some author, misguided author in the 21st century. We have the Bible for us. And we, don't, we, we can concern ourselves with what the first century church did. So I want you to notice several things here. Obviously, they lift up their voice to God with one accord and said, so what is it that they did? Uh, they, they, here it is. They prayed. That's deep right there, isn't it? You think that maybe they would gather together, all right, let's have a board meeting. And let's go over their threats and see how we can kind of navigate around the threat, see how we can maybe subtly uh, introduce Jesus Christ to our society. And let's see what we can do. And no, 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 that's not what they did. As a matter of fact, they're, go- they're going to redouble in their efforts to teach and to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in their petition. But I want us to examine their prayer because it is not just that they prayed, it is how they prayed that has to concern us. And before we go, I want to ask us a number of questions that I'll ask again at the end. And the first question is this, has the church become nominal to us? 
Right? Do we just kind of have a take it or leave it attitude? Do we respond as the first century church believers did? Uh, to whom uh, have we run to with our problems? Have we missed the mark in our praying? Have our prayers become self-centered? Have our petitions become dull? Has our priority in praying been misplaced? I believe we find the answer to all those questions concerning the first century church. So notice if you're taking notes, first of all, I want us to notice the proclamation of their praying. We're going to notice the proclamation of their praying, the petition in their praying, and the priority of their praying. But the first thing here is we see the proclamation of their praying. We think about prayer, I think, often as we just attach prayer to this kind of asking God for things. And certainly, that is part of praying. Prayer itself means to ask, uh, to petition. But notice here, the majority of their prayer, of this prayer that is recorded for us, is basically, uh, in its full extent, in its majority, a proclamation. Let's look at the proclamation. When they lift up their voice to God with one accord and said, here's the prayer. Ready? Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And I want to pause here and say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. What does that have to do with the threats? It has everything to do with the threats. We're going to see that. Verse 25. Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? And the kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servant that with all boldness they may speak thy word. So finally the request comes to verse number 20, 29, but from verse 24 down to verse 28, it's basically a proclamation about God. And it is evident here, I mean, uh, to me, is well, what stands out about these people who were threatened, and here the first thing that they do, they automatically do, is they talk to God. And so we could say, put it this way, uh, that these people were people who knew God. They were people who knew God. Because the first thing that they did is they prayed. And they prayed and they talk about God and they recognize God and they proclaim in their praying truths about God. And I want to ask the question here, how did they know God? How is it that they could pray to God? And I believe we find the answer in their prayer. I want you to notice, actually there's a number of ways, let's just write it down, I'm not going to count them. But first of all, they knew God through creation. Isn't that what they pray? By the way, they begin with the name Lord. Uh, that's, if you would, the, the title for Jehovah, the, the God who rules. And they say here, Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. So the first thing that they recognize in their prayers, they, uh, we see that this is a people who know God, and they know God uh, through creation. They declare, if you would, in this creation, the 
power of God, that God has made himself known, and his power has been demonstrated in creation. We talked a little bit about that on Wednesday as we think about the beauty of creation and the order of all things, uh, that we cannot but help but think about the one who has greatly designed all things. Things that are as simple as the uh, distance from the earth to the moon. If you bring the uh, sun 10 degrees closer to the, to the earth, it'd be too hot to live on. If the sun is removed 10 degrees further, the earth would uh, be too cold for any man to live on. Uh, you think about the rotation of how everything works. You think about the moon. The moon, uh, believe it or not, produces the tides. Well, if the moon was too close, the tides of earth would be too strong that nobody could live on earth. And you think about all the order and the structure and all the laws of nature and of gravity and all those things, and there's nothing but us to, to look at God and say, what a wonderful creation. And he talks about here, they, they pray and they say, Thou art God which hast made heaven and earth and the sea. And here it is, and all that in them is. Everything that has life, everything that moves, has been created by God, and God has made Himself known. Now, it is interesting here that that's where they begin. They know God through creation. They're talking to the Creator of the universe because they know Him. So they know God through creation, but then the second phase they go to is they know God through revelation. Notice in verse number 20, 25, they go from creation now to revelation. Here, verse 25, Who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So that's a quote from the book of Psalm. And uh, they, uh, verse 27, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. And so here as they're praying, they're recognizing God, the creator of the universe, and they know this God through his creation, but they also further know this God through his revelation. You see, God has made himself known by his word. They refer back to a psalm that would predict that the anointed one would be rejected of men, that he would be reviled in the world, uh, that the rulers of this world would stand up against the anointed of the Lord, uh, try to uh, stamp him out. And so he quotes here the revelation of God. And so that's how they know God, because of this specific revelation. They also know God through the incarnation of Christ. Notice verse 27, For of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. He's talking here about the holy child, Jesus. What is, he, uh, is that a reference to? It's a reference uh, to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that when we are first introduced to Jesus Christ in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? That's referring, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How is it possible that these people know God? I'll tell you how through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The Bible declares that to us in the book of Hebrews in chapter number 1. The Bible says, verse 1, 
God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets, and so we could say that is the specific revelation, the Old Testament revelation, the creation that we see God has spoken to us, verse 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the majesty, uh, uh, on the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we see here that these are people who know God uh, because of creation. They know God because of revelation. They know God because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But also, uh, lastly, they know God through the crucifixion. You see, as they're praying, they talk about the leaders who were against, verse 27, the holy child Jesus that was anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Here it is, verse 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now, if you remember, he said, uh, the believer uh, Peter preached something like this in Acts chapter number 2. You remember in verse number 22 of Acts 2. Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You see, how do these people, how can these people pray to God? How can these people pray uh, to God and call Him their Lord? I'll tell you why. Because they know Him. Because they know who He is. Because they know that they're talking to the, first of all, the creation of the universe, the one who has all power. They are talking to the one who has revealed himself in his specific revelation. And so they know him. They know him because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And when they saw Jesus Christ, and when they heard him, and when they, they saw the miracles that he did, there was no denying that this was Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the lion from the tribe of Judah. There was no mistaking that if they want to know God, uh, remember, as the, the disciples were interacting with Jesus Christ, they said, show us the Father. And what did Jesus say? Have I not been so long with you, and hast thou not known me? You see, they know God because of the incarnation, but they also know God intimately because of the crucifixion. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. And because of the man, Christ Jesus, now we have access unto the throne of grace so that God can hear us. We have access to God and to speak with God. And so, yes, we know God through creation. That's a wonderful thing. We know God through revelation. We know God through the incarnation of Jesus Christ and who He was, the express image of His person. But we also know God intimately through the crucifixion. And so when these believers are talking and praying to God, they're praying to somebody they know. And that's why they're praying. There's a number of things that we could emphasize here 
uh, in their in the creation. They are, if you would, they are proclaiming the power of God. In the Revelation, they're proclaiming the will of God. In the Incarnation, they're they're proclaiming the deity of Christ. And in the Crucifixion, they're proclaiming the salvation for man. You see, the proclamation of their praying, and I wonder here, as I looked at this prayer, I thought to myself, how much proclaiming do I do in my praying? And how much proclaiming we as a church do we in our praying? Because often when we pray, we just rush into the presence of God and we have something that we now ask of God and we make our petitions known to God. And by the way, He wants us to make our petitions known. But I wonder if the reason perhaps we are not asking in the right way or for the right petitions is because we have not done enough proclaiming about who God is and how is it that we know Him. And so perhaps when we do more proclaiming, perhaps our petitions will be more appropriate. We see the pro- proclamation in their praying, but secondly, we see the petition in their praying. And so here is uh, one simple verse, verse 29. Here's the petition. You ready for it? And now, Lord. Now, notice the now. That's after they began praying in verse 24. Now, to the God that we know, and now we've recognized who He is. Now, Lord. Now, they began with the Lord, right? The Lord of creation, revelation, incarnation, crucifixion. And now, Lord, we're still talking to you. Here's the petition. Behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. I want you to notice several things that I believe will help us as we think about the petition in their praying. The petition is one verse, which is, by the way, the smallest portion of the prayer. The proclamation is the largest portion. The recognition of God is the largest portion. And the petition is the smallest portion. You know, uh, and let me say this because I, I hear that often. And, you know, there's, uh, uh, you know, Christian comedians and people like that. And, and, and I think I understand what the point is when they're making a joke. But often there's kind of this joke and this idea that, you make fun of someone who kind of has this higher-than-thou attitude when they're praying, right? When they talk about, oh, you know, he talks about, oh, God, thou, thee, thou, and they kind of make fun of that. Uh, I don't think we should make fun of that. As a matter of fact, I think it's become totally absent in most people's praying, that there's no recognition of God. We go right to the prayer, just go to the point. Where is that in the Bible? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, and then give us this day our daily bread. And so I don't think we should be making fun of people who who recognize and who proclaim who God is and use His names and His attributes. I don't think that we should make fun of that at all. We should emphasize that in our praying, as they did in the first century church. And so as we think about the petition and the praying, I want you to notice four things about their petition. The first thing we notice is the perspective in their petition. What is the perspective? Well, how did they come to the petition? What led up to the petition? Well, we see it in the words, and now, Lord. So before they come to the actual asking of a petition, they proclaim the Lord and who He is. That means that they come to the petition 
with the right perspective because they focused on God. Isn't it interesting that throughout the whole proclamation, in comes, oh God, did you see what they said? We got threatened. And all we were doing is we were teaching and preaching our name. And God, what are we going to do? We don't know what to do. They didn't do that at all. Says God, you're all powerful God. You're the creator of the universe. You've made yourself known through revelation as we see it in the book of Psalm. You've delivered your son Jesus Christ and you've made yourself known in the person of Christ. And you have reconciled us to you through the person of Jesus Christ. And we come now in light of this truth. Now we come to the petition. Now that they have the proper perspective, now they can ask in the right way. Is it that we ask for the wrong things because we don't recognize who God is? Is it that our petitions are not the right types of petitions? I want you to see here, and I'll cover this in a moment, but they did not ask for the threats to stop, did they? What did they ask for? Boldness to preach more. That's interesting. Why did they, I want to, uh, I, I came and I'm thinking, why didn't they ask for, like, God to, you know, like, stamp them out or stop the threat or, you know, something like, no, no, no. Behold their threat. Grant unto thy servant that they may speak with all boldness. You see, I believe they asked that, 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 that petition in that way because they came with the right perspective. Could it be that sometimes we're asking for an easy life? when we shouldn't be asking for energy life, but we should be asking for the glory of God and for boldness. And so we see the perspective in their petition. And now, Lord, you see that word here, this is in their praying. And now, based upon what we know about God, and now, Lord. So that's the perspective of their prayer. But then we see the prompting of their petition. So uh, we have to go back. What is it that prompted them to pray? Well, they say it in their prayer. Notice verse 29. And now, Lord, here it is, behold their threatenings. <laughs> that, that was kind of what brought about this spring, right? If you remember, they went back to their own company, and they re- reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they began to pray. So that is what kind of prompted them to pray. It stood at the root of what caused them to enter into the presence of God and to begin praying. That is what prompted their petition. Behold their threatenings. This is the trouble. This is what is against us. This is what we've been told. Uh, This is uh, uh, what we are facing now. The perspective of their praying, the prompting of the petition, but also we see, thirdly, the prostration in their petition. The Bible says, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and here it is, and grant unto thy servants. Now, we could go right to the what they're asking for, but notice that there's a precursor to the request. Grant unto thy servants. Now, I, I believe that is connected to their proclamation. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and, and who are we? to come into the presence of God and to demand something of God. Who are we to come into the presence of God and say, God, would you do this for us? Uh, No, we come here, grant unto thy servants. They put themselves, if you would, there's a prostration in their petition. 
Uh, they refer to themselves as servants of the Lord. Uh, we are your subjects. We are those who serve God. Do we, we have to remember that in, uh, when we pray, God does not serve us. We don't try to move God to make God do what we want to do. We have to be moved of God in our praying. We have to say, God, we, we are your servants. We are subject to you. We are under you. We don't dictate your life. You ought to dictate our lives. And we position ourselves. We uh, come to you as servants and we ask, uh, notice here, uh, would you grant unto thy servant? They don't demand. They humbly ask. For God to do something, and we'll see later, for God, not for God to do something, if you would, for them, but for God to do something for His glory. So we see the perspective in their petition, the prompting in their petition, the prostration in their petition, but lastly, we see the particulars of their petition. So here it is. It's very complex here. I'm just kidding. Here's the petition. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness, they may speak thy word. I believe that request again arises from the proclamation. Uh, Notice here, what are they asking for? They're asking for boldness. But they could have said that with all boldness, we may speak. That with all boldness, we may preach. That with all boldness we may uh, be able to uh, speak unhindered. No. That with all boldness they may speak. Now again, that's the church asking on behalf of Peter and John. You see that? That they, because they're the ones that were threatened, Peter and John, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy Word. You see, it is apparent to me that the whole prayer is about God. At no point does it become about Peter and John. At no point does it become about the church. You know, I think sometimes if we're not careful in our praying, we can kind of act like martyrs. And we kind of think that it's all about us. And perhaps... It could be all about us if we ask, well, Lord, would you give me boldness to preach? Give me boldness to stand up. No, no, it's about God. Give me boldness to preach thy word. Because it's not about me. It's about God. It's not about what I want to do. It's about what God wants to see done in this world. And so that's the petition of their prayer, which leads us to the last point. So we see the proclamation in their praying, the petition in their praying, but thirdly, we see the priority in their praying. Verse 30 that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. Do you remember what, the, what they were told not to do? 
They weren't told to stop preaching. They weren't told to stop teaching. They weren't told to stop doing miracles. They were told to stop doing miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. They were told to stop teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. They were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, the world does not have any problem with teaching. The world doesn't have any problem with preaching. There's a lot of that that goes on in the world. The world doesn't have any problems with miracle. What the world has a problem with is Jesus. And so the particulars of the petition is that they would speak boldness so that they would speak the word of the Lord and so that the Lord would stretch forth His hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done by the name of Thy holy child Jesus which brings us to the priority of their praying. Why did they pray that prayer? I'll tell you why they pray that prayer. Because simply this, they wanted the Lord to be glorified. They, they, they could have gone on and do whatever, whatever they want to do had they not mentioned the name of Christ. But that's not what they were there for. That, that's why Peter said, remember, message last week, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak. If you take Jesus out of the message, we have no message. If you take Jesus out of the miracle, there is no miracle apart from Christ. It is all in His name. There is uh, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no message. There is no purpose for us. There is no reason why we gather together as the body of Christ in this world apart from the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see the first century church facing threats. And I want to think about those questions that I asked. Has the church become nominal to us? Right? Oh, it's just an association by name, but there's not really that personal contact there. You know, just take it, take it or leave it attitude. Kind of like a gym membership, you know, you go to the gym whenever you feel like it. I have a gym membership. I haven't been there in Probably years. That's a shame to say. It probably is canceled right now. This is the desire is not there, I'll tell you. It's a, I have a take it or leave it attitude. I do enough chasing around my children around the house. That's enough exercise. But has the church become nominal to us? That It was not to the first century believers. They went there automatically. To do what? To pray. Do we respond as the first century church did? When facing threats, difficulties, whatever it is, is that our first automatic response? To whom have we run to with our problems? Do we have to post, some, post something on social media? Do we have to run to our unsafe family members and tell us all the things that we're struggling with? Do we run to our friends and say, hey, uh, this is what's going on in my life? Or do we, as the first century believers did, uh, run to God with their problems? And the last question is, have we missed the mark in our praying? Surely that is convicting. Have our prayers become self-centered? It is evident by their proclamation from verse 24 through 28, it was not self-centered, it was all about the Lord. Have our petitions become dull? Petitions will become dull when they're all about us. And has our priority been misplaced? Are we actively in our praying seeking for the glory of God? 
at any point, and there is no point in this whole entire chapter where the church, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you, you, you think about this world and the, the censorship that's going on, and certainly we think about a day, perhaps in America, maybe not in the too far near future, where uh, what we preach will be prohibited from going online. I preach against homosexuality and the sins of the world that are being encouraged by our government. And so certainly censorship is, is coming. Uh, should we be praying for, that to, for the, the censorship not to happen, or should we be praying, praying for boldness not to stop speaking the truth? The truth will always be opposed. It will always be. Remember, isn't that what Jesus Christ told his disciples? The world will hate you. But know that the world's going to hate you because they hated me before they hated you. They don't hate you because they hate you. They hate you because they hate me. And so Jesus said, do you think it's going to be any different for you than it was for me? The world crucified the only man who ever lived was perfect because he was God in the flesh. And do we think that we who are unperfect will not have to face the same thing that a perfect man faced? You see, I think that perhaps in our praying we need to readjust some things. And I think that if we have God in view in our praying, our petitions will be corrected because we are seeking for the glory of God. Isn't that what the model that Jesus Christ gave us, the model prayer that he gave to his disciples? Our Father which art in heaven. And he told his disciples, this is kind of the the pattern of prayer that I want you to, to, to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. What is that? Seeking for the glory of God. It's about God. It's about his will. It's about his name being hallowed in our lives. It's all about him. And then give us this day our daily bread. And so may the Lord help us to be as the first century believers. And you could pay here. The title of the message is Facing Threats, but... You can put it facing, and you can add that with whatever you want on, on the back of that. And I believe we ought to pattern our prayer after the first century church, at least the response of the first century church. Let's pray.